On today's show, we begin our starting pitcher preview for 2023 with guest Nick Pollock of PitcherList. We'll highlight undervalued players, talk about pitch mix changes, what to and what not to look for in spring training, and much, much more. That's all coming up next on Beat the Shift. And welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast, presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, and it is starting pitcher weeks. We've got a couple of weeks here. We're going to talk about starting pitcher to get you prepared for your 2023 drafts. And baseball starts tomorrow. Um, exhibition games tomorrow. It's my favorite day of the year where you can turn on the TV and you can watch some. I mean, I know it's exhibition, but it's baseball. Aren't you excited about this? Yeah, it's great. And when you're able to drive home from work on a Friday afternoon and listen to a baseball game, it's not that common during the season. But when it comes spring, you know, you look outside. It may not look like spring, but spring is right around the corner. Yeah, and we'll be going to uh, exhibition spring training games next week down in Florida. First auction of the year on the Sunday. And actually, we have a guest. our guest today is in that auction. Uh, he, You know him from Pitcher List. And congratulations, he has just won the 2022 Baseball Writer of the Year, as presented by the FSWA. Welcome to the show, Nick Pollock. How are you? Hey, what is happening? Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ariel. I can't believe it. I saw your name on the list of, of baseball writers. I was like, well, okay, maybe next year. And uh, I, I, I can't believe it, honestly. So, yeah, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for the kind words. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's great to be in great company. So, we got some uh, we got some award winning people on the show today, and uh, it's going to be a great one. So, as we generally do, we go right into it. And um, you know, I do want to talk about some new stuff that's going on at, at PitcherList. Um, you have this new thing called PLV. You've got mm-hmm. everything going on. Why don't you tell us what's going on uh, with your site and a little bit about what this new type of way of analyzing uh, pitchers are. Yeah, we have a we have a lot of interesting things this year. We have our new projection system, uh, which uh, is normalized by ATC. We're super thrilled about partnering with you, of course, Ariel, um, in that way. And I uh, we uh, we also have a live draft assistant tool uh, for those with PL Pro. But it's all powered by this thing called PLV, um, which is pitch level value. It's similar to Pitching Plus and uh, and Pitching Bot uh, from Cameron Grove where it's a pitch quantifier. That is, it looks at the pitch and its qualities and certain counts and doesn't look at all the external factors like the run situation that is your man on base or doesn't really look at the actual outcome. But it looks at all the qualities of the pitch from movement to velocity, location, spin, all the stuff that you want to be looking at, release point, um, handedness, and all of that, and goes through a massive prediction model. It's not just something really simple here. I mean, we really put this through the through the, the rigor, and uh, to create an expected result. And the cool thing about this, instead of just using it as a pitch quantifier, is that we can actually analyze a specific event differently now. If we're able to say this pitch generally returns this kind of result, we can say, well, that's different. 
and then assign positive or negative values based on that instead of just saying, well, this was the result of the thing, thus the pitch must have been good or bad. And we all know there have been meatballs before that we scream at the hitter for not hitting out of the park. And there are times the pitcher makes a really good pitch and we just say, you know what? The guy got a double on it and you just got to tip your cap to him. And to be able to take a pitch quantifier and assign it to the hitter now and say like, well, this hitter is really good because he hits all the right pitches or he doesn't swing at the pitches that normally guys swing at. It really opens the door for a different type of analysis. And so we're so excited about this. We have some really cool stats about it from pitch volatility, quality pitch percentage and bad pitch percentage to hit luck. That is a much easier way to assign BABIP uh, instead of it regressing to a different value each time for each player hit luck always goes to zero this guy has allowed 20 more hits this past year than he should have it's a really really fun stat um, and we have a lot of other applications that we're working on as well uh, but yeah we think that plv is something really new and exciting and a different way for us to develop these stories about players in a way that wasn't possible before yeah and the nice thing about it and i've spoken about this before is that the the level of detail is the is an event which is the pitch there's nothing more finer than you can to describe a, an event than the pitch. Here's right. the pitch, right? Uh, and when you think about it, you know, game. It used to be everything used to be analyzed on a per game basis, and then we got down to the at bat level. But when you get down to the pitch, you're dealing with a larger sample size. And from a mathematical standpoint, I can tell you that it stabilizes so much quicker. Like it takes a lot yes. of at bats. To know that, oh, this guy is going to hit 30 home runs. But when you look at events in terms of the pitch, it only takes pitchers, I'm going to say, two to three games for these metrics yeah, to stabilize. Is that about right? 275 pitches for PLV to stabilize. Yeah, exactly exactly what I said there. Yeah, um, there you so, go. Look at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, same thing with CSW. Anything at the right. event at, at that level. Um, I, I do WPDI. It's the same type of thing. Uh, and that really mm -hmm. is the way to go. Um, it... it, it it can stabilize quickly. And I'll say one, one other thing about it is that, um, you know, preseason, you know, a lot when, when I do projections, you know, most of it is based on classical, you know, you're regressing, see what a player did past couple of years. But I think that this type of analysis is even more helpful in season when you see what power pitcher is going during the season and you see how things stabilize in season, it's more predictive in season and than anything else. Like I would want right. to switch to a PLV way of, of analyzing things very quickly in season. Is That's that, actually you, you what we're really excited about it. Um, you know, we have this PL pro package because obviously we have these preseason things, but we actually are doing DFS projections with this. And I'm really excited just to see this on my own. I mean, I, I, I'm actually not someone that plays DFS a lot, but I do a lot of fantasy streaming. And I have my article every day where I, I cover all pitchers for that day and say this is the order of it. I'm going to be shouting at PLBot every day on my Twitch stream. I'm like, I'm, I'm so excited about this. Because it's going to give like a ranking based on PLV. And it's going to be a, a wrestling match a lot through the year. So I, I'm really stoked about that. Is this going to start during the season or are we going to get a taste of it during spring training? Uh, so you are going to see it uh, the week of the start of the season. You're not really going to see it for spring training stuff because also data is really weird when it comes to spring training. Uh, and while we do have access to StatCast data, it's not all in every single uh, spring training park. So we might be able to get a little taste of it. I got to talk to Kyle Bland about that, but uh, don't expect really these tools until the start of the season.
Yeah. Now, does this also work on the hitter side, or is this more more pitcher? Oh focus? man. Oh gosh, I think PLV is better for hitters than it is for pitchers, honestly, because it allows us to shape, uh, you know, swing decisions better than ever. We have a stat called hitter performance that essentially says, look, we've determined by, based on the pitch what should happen, and the hitter is the last line of influence. You know, we talked about the timeline before. Um, the pitch is thrown, the hitter does something, contact is made, there's an event in the field, and then there's a conclusion to that event, right? Uh, and we haven't really been able to just look at the hitter's influence before. We've just said they've had this contact and they have this outcome, right? But now that we're able to, along that timeline, add a number to the first event, which is the, which is the pitch thrown, the only remaining variable is the hitter's ability. So that means it's just a simple algebra problem now, and we can assign something to that. So I actually think that the implications of this are massive for, for hitters. Scott Chu, our senior uh, fantasy analyst here, the guy does hitter list, uh, pitcher list, uh, he, uh, he has access to all these rolling charts. Actually, that's free for everybody. It's underneath tools inside of our website. You can look at the PLV hitter app, and it has all these rolling charts of swing decisions and, and power and contact ability and all this stuff rooted inside of PLV. So uh, it's really exciting. I think ultimately people are going to use it more for hitters than pitchers. Although you probably won't be able to get like stolen bases and stuff because you're not dealing with the, the actual. Sure. Stolen bases is not. Yeah, that's that's a weird thing. Like, well, I mean, we actually can look at this is interesting. We can look at PLV based on someone being on first and in potential higher um, stress positions. So think of it like Alberto Mondesi on first base versus Anthony Rizzo. Maybe not Rizzo, but you understand someone who's not right. a uh, stolen base threat. Do we actually see a change in PLV in those situations? Uh, there's a lot of exploration we can do with it. Right, right. No, great stuff. And uh, ATC is now on the pitcher list site. You can yes. see. Yeah, right underneath all those great charts that you have. It's got percentile charts. But when you look at somebody's stats, he's where it is in Major League rank. Really, mm -hmm. really great charts. I, I urge everybody to go over and check it out at Pitcher List. Fantastic stuff, Nick. Oh, man, I'm, I'm just touched that, you know, I have ATC with our live draft assistant tool. Uh, and then, yeah, with uh, helping us power our PLV projections. So it's great. There you go. All right. Well, let's do our strategy section. And, you know, I was talking with Ruvain before uh, the show. And, uh, you know, Ruvain and I, a lot of what we do is strategy and valuation and stuff like that. But a lot of the intricacies of um, the different pitches and stuff, we're, we're not as up to, to, to par with uh, with guys like Nick, who really, Nick was a pitcher in, in college and knows the differences, the real differences between the grips and, and the throws and the and everything come with it. So uh, we're really fortunate to have you in the show, and hopefully that'll uh, help you, the listener, uh, really get a lot out of uh, what you should be doing with starting pitching. So let's just talk a little bit of strategy here. And, you know, the first thing that we want to talk about are pitchers changing roles. Sometimes you get a relief pitcher turn starter, starter turn reliever. How does that affect performance from one year to the next, the role change, Nick? I think a lot of the times if a guy has begun the starting process the year before, it doesn't really impact much the next year. Uh, you'll look at, say, Spencer Strider, Christian Javier, Jeffrey Springs a bit this year, all guys that have underneath 150 innings this past season. I think they're just ready to go, uh, and it doesn't really change too much. Now, the upper end for them, like, uh, you know, you have your NOLA types that are going to be flirting with 200 innings. Generally, we don't see those that haven't had a full season in the rotation be able to go six consistently enough to hint at the upper echelon of innings. So that is the biggest element, I would say. 
But really, it's not a big deal. Um, a lot of these guys, I mean, I'd say 95% of them have been a starter in everything but when they weren't in the majors prior. So they are used to starting, and they're just likely excited to have that ability. So those kind of guys, I'm not too worried about now. In season, it's a little different. The one aspect I think that people overlook a lot is let's say you have a, someone who you expect to be in the rotation. Let's say Aaron Ashby was healthy and he's the number six and we're just like getting ready for him to get that role, right? He's not healthy, unfortunately, but let's just say this is the case. There's a annoying period, even when they say, you know what, Aaron Ashby's not going to start in this. He's probably going to go four innings the first time. He's not going to be stretched out to 80, 90 pitches for probably three, four starts. And even then, you still have to bake in another few weeks before he actually becomes that really serviceable starter that you're okay putting in your weekly league. So it's frustrating in season, which is why I get more excited about guys with that definitive role out of the out of camp than I do ones that potentially switch in. Now, of course, Strider and Javier are huge exceptions to this role last year. We're so excited that that worked out for them. But sometimes you just get guys that bounce back and forth. I mean, Ashby was someone like this too that people were holding on to and hoping for, never really panned out there. And that's a more common situation. So be careful of that in your drafts, yeah. Ruvain, have have you found that this is a place that you can find undervalued players? I mean, in the past we've seen Chris Sale, Adam Wainwright, who began as relievers, and they turned into premier starters. I mean, we just saw Spencer Strider. Garrett Whitlock looks like he's going to be more of a full-time starter next year. Uh, is that a place that you could mine for undervalued players? You can definitely. I mean, another name you didn't mention was Lance Lynn. Long time ago, he used to be in a closer oh, wow. for the Cardinals, and then he became the starter. Um, there's a there is untapped treasures there because you don't know what what you're actually going to get out of them because when they're in the relief role usually they'll throw two pitches maybe three but when you're a starting pitcher you got to throw three four i mean chris bassett has like seven pitches he throws seven different types of pitches um the fact that you have to use, use different pitches and think more and it's actually there's more preparation into it and you're planning more for all the hitters instead of just for a couple of hitters i think you see you can see some people some pitchers will just take off some of them will not but a, a lot of times if you do hit with these guys these can be great values because you'll get them for almost nothing or get them in relief pitcher value but they'll have starting pitcher value toward the end of the season so Nick, let's talk about new pitches because we hear a lot of buzz sometimes where oh my goodness, this pitcher has a new pitch or this year oh, yeah. did I hear Joe Ryan has two new pitches or um, <laughs> what is the value of adding a new pitch and does that translate to success in general? So I uh, so I I do want to say one thing. I on my Twitter am always going to get excited. I think uh, one of my favorite parts about what we do, not just in fantasy, but just really being a baseball fan, is I love watching guys that we don't really consider being elite, showing flashes of being elite. And anytime I hear about new pitches, it's just more excitement about the possibilities and the hype. And I love that. And I, I lean into it. I get giddy as my own self. Um, so it, it's hard for me at times when I put out a tweet about someone adding a new pitch and I want to share that excitement. I always feel like I need to have the disclaimer being like, but don't actually change where you're drafting him. <laughs> like, don't actually apply this to fantasy. Just be like, oh, maybe. And that's a really cool idea that maybe that does work out. Because Alex Fast and I have a joke now about an image that we share back and forth, which is Bart Simpson writing on the chalkboard, I will not draft this player because he has a new pitch. 
And that's really what you have to do. Uh, there are so many new pitches every year. I think the best examples that I have off, off the top of my head are Tyler Glasnow and Chris Archer learning change-ups from years past and how that did not really materialize. Now, Glasnow later did add a slider, and that was a huge deal. And then Freddie Peralta added a slider, and that was a huge deal. And I think the one exception in that rule, you know, that rule set is a guy that has an overpowering fastball and does not have a slider that we care about at all saying, Hey, I have a slider now. That is the one case. I'm like, okay, I'm going to turn my head for this because generally if you throw really hard and you have a slider that isn't, uh, you know, it really, you're supposed to throw a slider like you're throwing a fastball mentally. This is why uh, Zach Allen called his slider a cutter for a while, because mentally he didn't want to wrap his arm around or his wrist around the ball on release. He wanted to keep a stiffer wrist. Uh, so because of that, it does translate well for those fastball guys to have just a new pitch of a slider. But if it's something else I traditionally, or like a reshape of their pitch, I throw it all out because so many guys in spring training, it's like the one chance that they have to add something because they don't really want to do it much in seasons. Obviously, you have exceptions to that, but generally, spring training is all about, let's see if anything works. The percentage of times that it works is well below 50%. And if it's below 50%, then I say, well, I cannot lean on this for my drafts. I can't throw out everything else in favor of this. So, unfortunately, when you hear all these new pitches, it's a great thumbs up, and then I need to see how is he throwing on opening day for me to actually do anything. Is a guy having amazing success, though, in the spring? Is all of a sudden going five innings and going 10 strikeouts and no walks after getting, like, three strikeouts at most last year? Then that matters. So maybe there is something. But just hearing that a guy is throwing a new pitch, I need to see more. All right, that's very, very helpful information. Um, it, now, about pitch mix changes. Now, that is very real. And, you know, I, we, I haven't coined this word, but uh, I use the term Corbinize to denote if you had got a good pitch, throw more out of it because that's your best pitch. You'll get more results. And Patrick Corbin did that. He just kept throwing the slider the heck out of it. And that's called Corbinizing his uh, his pitch mix. Um, so the questions for you, Nick, are how does it come about that a pitcher – obviously everyone's going to tinker with it slightly, but how does it come about that they're drastically altering their pitch mix to the point that it actually works? How should we pay attention to this? And – um, you know, what's the best way we can track? Because, you know, if you just look at a box score, you're not going to be able to see that there's a pitch mix change. What sure. resources can you look at online to really determine whether a pitcher has has it or, or to bubble up to the top, which pitchers we should pay attention to the fact that they are changing their, their pitch mix? So, first of all, you said Corbinizing, and my first thought was Corbin Burns going from a four-seamer to a cutter. Uh, and that was a huge deal where he had this cut action on his fastball and then leaned into it and turned it into a cutter and threw that a ton. And all of a sudden now Corbin Burns is Corbin Burns. Uh, but then you went to Patrick Corbin. It's like, oh, right. Yeah, the ultra slider stuff. See, I've blocked out Patrick Corbin. I don't know if you guys have. I, I just <laughs> we, have. We, we try point. to also. We try to also. I know. Yeah. But he also got so unlucky last year. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but I, as far as resources go, well, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. I mean, not not to overplug or anything like that, but uh, in spring training, I do a morning podcast uh, through March talking about the things I've seen by looking at StatCast game feed, um, which if you're lucky, then you can actually see um, some of that pitch uh, usage change. But actually something we added onto the site this year is we have up and down arrows for usage 
by game inside of our game logs. You actually will see in this game, he threw 20% more sliders than his season average up to now, um, which is a really cool thing that I'm so excited about. Uh, and we're also creating a live leaderboard that is for that day. You'll be able to see these changes as the game is going on, which is, I think, I, I could not be more ecstatic about this. It's just going to help me write my normal article every day. Um, but don't get too excited about pitch change stuff um, right away. There are a lot of times guys utilize sliders against right-handers and then change-ups against lefties. So if you might see one day that he's throwing 10% more change-ups, take a look. Did he throw? Did he face more opposite-handed batters on that day? Then that's probably why he threw more change-ups that day, right? Um, so there are sometimes nuance to it. I generally like to see if it's a reduction of his fastball or not. And for a lot of guys, they have a very bad fastball, but really good secondaries. So if I all of a sudden see his fastball used to be around 55% usage or so, go down to 40% for a game, I then maybe get a little bit excited that he's leaning in on it. Aaron Savali, please keep just throwing cutters and curveballs. Do not throw that sinker, please. So those are the kind of things that I think uh, can make the large impact. And yes, the third one is if I can just yell at them enough on social media, maybe they will listen to this idiot once. Um, maybe Blake Snell is now doing that. Thankfully, no more changeups. Oh my gosh, no more changeups, Blake Snell. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, I I think that you know, for me personally, I know that uh, you know, one, I mean, let's call it a, a hole in my fantasy game is that I don't have this wealth of information to spot some of these changes. So I do rely on on you and and others who who you know do point out some of these pitch mix changes. Um, I I will say that is a, it is a blind spot of projections because projections right now assume that everything that happened last year and everything that happened the year before it's all going to be stable, right? Anytime you have right. models, it ha- has to do with stability. Um, the models that are running currently, and I say currently because I think this will change in the future, uh, is not uh, componentized for the pitch for the actual type of pitch, right? You don't have a people don't do models that are based on hit the fastball based on the slider. And then if a pitcher is changing usage, well, then it's easy. You just change what the pitch mix is, the project. You'll have a projected pitch mix for next year, right? Models aren't doing that currently. And so if there is a pitch mix change that's for the better, that won't be in projections. So that's something that you really need to look at in a soft manner currently. That sounds great because it keeps me in a job, honestly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I do think, though, that the models will start to do that because it, it obviously no! is meaningful and makes sense. <laughs> well, Fangraphs, <laughs> do, Fangraphs does have a little bit on their page about uh, about per, uh, percentage uses of when which pitch is used and the velocity of the pitches as well. Um, so you can see if all of a sudden a new pitch pops up in, in, in the new year and they see they're using it more. I mean, if you go through a couple of pitches from last year, I mean, if you look at their pitches, pitches that people used more often, like let's say Zach Gallon threw the curve 10% more last year than prior years. Dylan Cease threw the fastball 6% less, but the slider... more. Yeah, that was the thing I didn't predict was the slider usage going way up for Dylan C's. That was annoying. I mean, you can can track this, and actually, these are guys who actually did well last year. Tony Gonsolin, he threw the straight fastball less, he threw the split finger more, and Jeffrey Springs, he threw the changeup less, and he threw the curveball more. So, each pitcher is different. Not one pitch is for each pitcher. Each pitcher is able to master their own pitch, and once they know which one works for them, they should just keep throwing and throwing it until the league catches up. So, so Ruben, you, you you just mentioned a bunch of names. You know, how did you bubble up to the top the, that list of players to know that? Oh, take a look at these guys. Like, how, how did you generate that list? 
I actually just went to this went to the Fangraphs and I went to see the top fifty ranked pitchers that they had from last year from just 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 statistically speaking only. I went there and I and I went to think. I thought about who was not in the top fifty the year prior, and I started clicking on the names, and then you see these huge changes in chick in in pitch changes and i'm like maybe this is the cause of it so if you can catch on early on and you can get these guys early you know that's the best way to go about it but otherwise it's it's a lot of manpower just to go through all this stuff because like nick you know there's so many pitches to go through it's so hard to get to everybody well i've got you because i do i cover every single start i've done it since 2015 i just read the sb roundup i'll tell you if there's any pitch change uh stuff going on I uh, with with Gonsolin, you're right. The splitter got used a lot more last year, and it got so fortunate. Uh, he threw so many bad ones, but got away with it. But he has a really bad fastball, and his slider doesn't get enough strikes, so he had to do that. And I'm glad it worked out for him. Uh, and I'm also really surprised about that change of usage going down for Springs because honestly, the changeup is his best pitch. Uh, it might be that he saw more lefties than he usually does. I don't know. And is this something that we can pick up really quickly in spring training to say, okay, here's his first two starts, and whoa, look at the usage is different? Like, is that something you that can, you're really drilling into? Uh, it's hard to in spring because a lot of times, good example is Matthew Boyd uh, told us a lot in 2020 um, before everything shut down that he really wanted to work on his changeup in spring. So he actually didn't throw his slider as much because he trusted his slider was going to be there, and he just wanted to experiment more with the changeup. Hmm. So it's difficult for us to really assess that this is what it is for the full year at that point i think gotcha. with i uh, you know it's it's more about the success and hearing a lot of quotes about like yeah, i'm throwing this and it's really really good um you know for example one that's interesting is clark smith throwing a cutter now and there's a lot of good news about that but then again the yankees there's a staff all through more cutters i think it was a matt blake thing uh so maybe that's an interesting thing that gets me excited about clark schmidt again um instead of domingo herman but it's really hard at this point to make a leap and change everything because of those quotes in the spring. All right, before we go on, it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Now, Nick, it's funny you should mention the spring because last year, spring training, eight starters. This is We were going to go into the topic of whether or not we can learn anything from spring training. Last year, spring training, eight starters gave up three home runs or more during the spring. Aaron Nola... Lance McCullers, Verlander, Darvish, Scherzer, Ray, and Cal Quantrill. All those pitchers and all all those and, and Garrett Cole. All those pitchers have one thing in common except for one item. And what and what is the thing they have in common? And who is the outlier? I mean of the pitchers. Nola, McCullers, Verlander, Cole, Darvish, Scherzer, Ray, and Quantrill. So, uh, and they I all gave up more than three home runs during last year's spring. Um, I think that's Cal Quantrill who throws a sinker primarily, and the other ones throw four seamers. Ariel, any guess? <laughs> I have no clue on this one, Ruvain. Okay, each pitcher had their home run to fly ball rate go down during the course of the year, except huh. for Garrett Cole. Oh, that's which makes me think: Can we actually, Nick? Can we learn anything? From spring training from the pitchers well okay so 2022 spring training was weird i mean it's it's we haven't had a normal like year since 2019 right that's one of the things i'm just so excited about with this year because last season we didn't know where anyone was and i think the headers were ahead of the pitchers 
um, where the pitchers didn't really get to warm up as much. We saw more shoulder things in the beginning of the year, like Wheeler and Gallon come to mind. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me that those guys allowed more home runs in the beginning because they're just kind of getting warmed up and everything. Um, so I, I don't know how to really look at it. And then, of course, you have like 2020 and then 2021 was weird. I mean, the whole – oh, gosh. So it's hard for me to really um, have a, a blank assessment of spring training at the moment. I, I think really when it comes to spring training, it's down to is velocity up and – are they is a guy like completely falling apart or not? Last year we saw Brandon Woodruff not have a single good spring training start, and well, you know he needed what like two months to get on track in season. Um, obviously he had Reno's disease, but that was the issue, and that we could have seen that from spring training. We we're all like, no, that's fine, it's fine, and it wasn't. But then he was really, really good when he came back from that, right? So it, that's really it that I can pull from spring training and the home run stuff. I'm like, ah, it's whatever yeah the home run stuff not uh i will say i agree with the the velocity other than if your name is zach Granky, if your name is zach <laughs> Granky, disregard it but other than that yeah if you see some big changes in velocity other up or down that usually right. is somewhat of a sign um I, I look for strikeout rate if you see these large strikeout rates that's also usually a good sign yeah sure what about what about walk rate? Where you want to see the the pitcher's ability to control? Because I, I'm sure they want to get their control down before the season starts. Is that something we should look for too? Only only if it's a really large one. But sometimes there'll be a case of like a three one count and instead of throwing a normal fastball that they do. Like you know what? I'm working on my changeup. Let's see if I can do it in this situation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think that the walks are not telling us mostly noise. I'm sure you can pick out one or two examples, but for most of the part, it's noise. But big strikeouts, that is definitely a, a small signal, not a big signal, but it's definitely uh, correlated. Um, do you think that a pitcher changing teams from year to year makes any difference whatsoever? No. I mean, the only the only scenario I would say is if, it's, if he's going from a really, really bad pitching development uh, team to a really good one. So if he's going from like the Pirates to the Dodgers, then I go, okay, well, this is maybe something that I want to look at, right? Um, you know, I mean, we've heard so many stories of guys leaving bad organizations. And well, we've seen Giants fix pitchers, right? Gi you know, you go to the Giants. Oh, ah, man. Fix you, right? I, I go back and forth on this one. Uh, like how much Giants actually fi fix pitchers. Uh, I think you saw a weird Cardinals? Uh, like a sample. Cardinals, kind of. I mean, it's about the environments of stuff. So, like, Giants have a good home park, and they had a really good defense in 2021. It was a bad one in 2022. And what do you know? Alex Cobb and Alex Wood um, didn't perform well in, in San Francisco. Logan Webb was worse a little bit, you know. It, it's it's a little harder to do there. Uh, with the Cardinals, you have Arenado and you have Goldschmidt, which is really nice uh, and a really nice division. And they had the mentality for a while about getting ground balls and all. That worked for them. Uh, I don't know if, like, Stephen Matz went. I mean, sure, he was hurt and all, but that didn't really pan out as we wanted it to. Um, Jordan Montgomery was good at first for, like, the good month of August, and then he got a lot worse in September. Um, I don't know. I, I find it really hard to to say that the sample that we have, which is very limited of guys changing to very specific teams, to jump on it, except for these legitimate extremes. So for the most part, pitchers changing teams doesn't really make a difference to me. Gonna go to Ruven on this question here. How do you var how do you value foreign pitchers? So uh, we have our New York Mets signed Kodai Senga. Um, 
how how do you value him? How do you uh, how do you determine? Because you don't you don't really have uh, a the major league equivalency is not that fantastic coming over from from the you know from from overseas. Uh, what are you doing with Sanga this year? Well, I think you have to look at his, at his stats where he came from. Like, say, look at the stats from Japan, and look how old the pitcher is. I mean, I think the older the pitcher is when they come over, they're more seasoned. Then nothing is going to phase them as much. A younger pitcher may be more overwhelmed when they come here. So I'm looking at the, at the age and how well they 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 did overseas. If they let's say got into a playoff scenario, something like that, and also depends what market they're coming to. Kodai Senga, he's coming to a New York market. How is he going to do? Is he going to be able to flourish? Hideo Nomo, when he came over and he came to L.A., he flourished. He he was amazing. He was a he was one of the the pioneers coming from Japan. No one knew how he would do. And you can have flops like you can have Masato Yoshi, who is okay, and you can have Hideki Arabu. So you have the long you have and Yankees and Mets, obviously, and also a big uh, a market. But it's so hard to tell because you can have these big guys you don't know how they're going to perform especially based on what city they go to i think it's harder for a overseas pitcher to do well in a bigger market than a smaller market any take on this nick so i i found that um a lot of these uh japanese pitchers come over and they have two things in common one they a lot of them throw splitters um so think of shohei think of darvish uh, and of course the ghost ghost fork here um, with uh, uh, with Senga. You also have uh, Maeda as well, and you find that they generally get Tommy John pretty shortly after. Uh, so it does make me a little fearful of Senga um, for the second half or so of the season that there might be something there with it. But where he's going in drafts right now is not the top forty of pitchers or so. He's going outside the top 50. I have Senga in the middle of the 50s for me. And I'm thinking, of course, in 12-teamers where I'm past the point where I feel as if I need these guys to hit. These are more of like, okay, I might be changing these guys out of my roster during the season. So I would love going for Senga. I think there's a lot of excitement with it. And if that injury question that I have in my head, that, I mean, of course, is just complete, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just guessing here. I speculation that is the second half sure if he has a great first half then i'm really in so i'm curious actually revealing what you think about that little theory i have it's it, it is interesting um because you know the way they teach baseball here is different than the way they teach it in japan um i i think there's more of a tendency to teach teach it incorrectly here just because they want to have an in an uh, you know, an, in, an impact right away. They want to have the impact. They want to make sure they want to throw the pitchers that are thrown more here as opposed to what they did uh, overseas. And if they should, they could just stick to what they were doing overseas, they shouldn't have the problem because they throw a lot more innings over there than they do here. Yeah. I have Senga as the number 53rd best pitcher according to ATC. He's going in the 13th round of 15-team draft. So, uh, you know, I like being a little bit more on the high floor side, the less risk side, even in the 13th round. So I'm probably not going to take him because he is a risk. Um, my issue with Senga personally, though, is that he really has two pitches, so he profiles more like a reliever, not like a starter. So I'm a little weary about that. Uh, sure, yeah. But, yeah, but in terms of foreign people coming over, I, I don't know. I, I don't really have a great thing. I, I mean, projections do what the projections do. It's the, Like I said before, the major league equivalency is not fantastic. So, you know, you have a projection. It's not as accurate as some of the other ones. Uh, you know, it is what it is for me. Uh, I don't really have anything else to go by. But, of course, he's a Met, so 
I'm hoping that it's on the plus side, right? Um, okay, so we're going to get to the ATC undervalued players. And just to set it up once again is, you know, we run our projections, we look at the market, and we see which which pitchers, in this case, the market seems to be undervaluing according to ATC projections. And then we do a deep dive into each of them just to see if we agree with ATC's assessment or not. You know, as I said at the top of the show, um, I'm a little bit more confident in my own ability to analyze hitters these days, so I rely more on guys like Nick to get us through it. Not that I can't analyze. I obviously do analyze pitchers, but I'm more confident in my ability to analyze hitters. So, you know, one of the things about uh, doing it right is knowing what your weaknesses and strengths are and learning from everything. So we're here to learn as well. First pitcher, and we're gonna we're not going to talk about pitchers at the top today. We're going to start middle, low. Uh, we're going to start with roughly the eighth round. And we have Luis Severino of the Yankees. Severino projected for 145 innings with 157 strikeouts, a 3-5 ERA, and a 113 whip, according to ATC. Uh, ATC is showing low projections volatility, which is always a good thing. He was a $10 player last year. We have ATC projecting almost a $15 value, and the market is projecting him for about a $14 value. So a dollar at that level is pretty decent. Uh, other than health, to me, I seem he seems uh, like a low-risk investment. Like if you told me, yes, Severino will pitch 150 innings, I, I'm pretty confident he's going to get something close to, to what he has, luck aside. Um, is that your feeling on Severino? Is, is it just a health issue for you, Nick? Absolutely. I really love the skill set of Luis Severino. I actually remember seeing uh, one of his early starts in April last year against the Blue Jays, where he had a legitimate cutter, a legitimate slider, and curveball. Three different velocity bands, different movement. It was so beautiful, throwing upper 90s. And I think he's so talented, but he had a lat strain on top of recovering from Tommy John last year. And I don't know how many innings we can expect. The old joke was that, oh, since 2019, entering last year, he only had 18 innings total for three seasons. And here we are, only 102 innings for Severino in 2022. I don't know how many we're going to get. I want him on my teams because I feel he is quality when he pitches. It's a really good fastball, a really good slider. The changeup can be good. Uh, and then you have that new cutter, which I think is a very effective pitch for him as well. 30% CSW last year. It's just about getting a little bit more strikes uh, and more consistency with it. So Severino's great. It's just I have no idea how many innings he's going to throw, which means I need to put him behind a few others that I expect a lot more of a workload from this year. So, I mean, you can say the same about Jacob deGrom, who we, we oh, know boy. that he's going to be good, but are you going to get 140 innings? Are you going to get 100 no. innings? Are you going to get nothing? So, like, I feel like like with it, pitchers versus analyzing hitters is it's – a, very often about the health because pitchers are far more risky to stay. And, and nowadays there's very few pitchers who even pitch 180 or 170 innings. So it's a, it's a, is this pitcher have the skills? And I think that for a lot of these in the middle rounds, we can assess that they do. And then it's just a question of health. Ruvain, uh, what's your assessment on Severino? Is he going to last the 145 innings, which will earn him uh, a positive value according to ATC? I think there's a possibility he'll go above and beyond that. He's in a contract year. He's playing for his livelihood right now. Um, it was recently said, I read an article, that Luis Severino ate cleaner this offseason, 
worked harder. And Garrett Cole is actually quoted as saying that he has, quote, got some like wild horse characteristics in him. He's got a lot of horsepower right now. He's throwing the slider less last year, the slider less, the cutter and fastball more. His ERA was 3.1 last year, but his expected ERA was under 3. It was 2.94. So he has the ace upside there. He has the possibility. I mean, look what he did in, in 2019. I mean, 2018. He was 19 and 8, and he had a K per 9 of 10. That, why can't he, I mean, man, he threw 191 innings then. I don't think he's throw 191 innings, but I mean, uh, every, the, the projections are in the mid 140s. There's no reason why he can't go past it. And if he wants to show that he's healthy and he wants a contract, he may push himself to go more than that. So let me get to this guy named George Kirby. And it really struck me very funny when I'm doing the projections. And if I ask you, Nick, is George Kirby more risky or less risky than other pitchers? What would you say? I would say that George Kirby's less risky. Okay, so yeah, and the model agrees. The model, um, the the interprojectional standard deviation is low. The skew is very very low. The projections, if anything, have an outlier low. He spreads his value so well that WHIP is nice and stable. Projections just agree on this guy, and he has one of the largest risk-adjusted bumps that I give. So when I price players, I have what the expected stats say, but if I find that there's less parameter risk, they're actually going to go up in price, and I'm giving him an extra $2, even more than that, in terms of a parameter risk bump. So George Kirby is just stable. Uh, he's got, and he's got the upside. I mean, I if if he finishes the season with an ERA of two nine five. I'm not that surprised. The stuff is there, and the best thing about him are the walks. That control is so good. Uh, he had a 4% walk rate last year. Uh, we're projecting just under a 5% one, uh, and and last year he did great. His BABIP was high. He, 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 more hits snuck through. So this is a guy who I really like the stuff. Health should be there. I mean, it sounds like a very good floor guy, and uh, you're paying a seventh-round price, but you might be getting a fifth, fourth-round value with him. What are your thoughts, Nick? So uh, you say that the Babbitt was high, uh, which it was, 332, which is the 10th percentile. Uh, you don't want that. However, his hit luck was negative, too. Essentially, he allowed two fewer hits than we expected. Uh, which is why why I think is so cool from Hitlock. Again, that's taking PLV and saying, based on this, he should allow this many hits or so. And if you're thinking, I don't know if that really is true, Kevin Gosman, guess what, has the first percentile of Hitlock last year. So, yeah, it, it generally works incredibly well in this way. And I'm really surprised to see that with George Kirby. Uh, generally, based on what he threw, yeah, he should have allowed pretty much the same amount of hits that he allowed last season, and yet he still had an effective year. I think he could get better from where he is right now. The four-seamer had a 16% swing strike rate, which is incredible. That's better than Strider and Christian Javier's, by the way. It's 99th percentile across all four-seamers. You have a slider and curveball that should improve. This is, this is one of those cases where I see a rookie season from a pitcher, and I think you have to bake in some improvement, uh, especially when he is George Kirby, who is a very well-known prospect. There feel, it feels like... That slider and curveball, we know that this isn't their ceiling quite yet. And I have to believe that slider and or curve get better in 2023. I mean, look at, say, Shane McClanahan from 2021. We thought, all right, he has the velocity um, and breaking stuff, but there's still some things he has to figure out. What do you know? He increased the chance changeup usage, uh, figured out the fastball a little bit, and what do you know? He became one of the best pitchers in baseball. It's that kind of situation with George Kirby. And as you mentioned, 
the the walks are super low actually i think he can walk a little bit more batters because he's throwing these sliders and curveballs that got hit um and that's why you see that hit lock i think where it's at in that, that bad bit because he's in for not walking guys he's throwing hittable pitches instead which isn't good right uh so there there's a balance to be made there that i think george kirby is going to make and you're going to see more whiffs. You're going to see that strikeout rate rise a little bit. Uh, he only had a 24.5% last year. I think that can go to 26%, 27% while reducing the hits. George Kirby has that high innings floor to me. He threw 130 last year in the majors. I think the Mariners are going to throw him out every five days. And they're going to let him also go more than five innings. They're going to let him go six constantly. I really like George Kirby. And uh, I'm targeting him everywhere. I think I have him around like 25 or 26 in my ranks. Yeah, two more things, though, about George Kirby, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give it to Ruvain, is that you know the innings projection for 155 innings, that could be low. So I can actually see him pitch more than that, which would boost his value. The strikeout rate, though, you say he can go more. I actually see a little bit of a negative, a little bit of a, a poss- possibility to go downward. A bunch of projection systems are projecting closer to like a 22% strikeout rate. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not fully there with that. The strikeout rate will go up, but he's at about a strikeout per inning right now. Um, but with that wh- nice whip and very good ERA, I'm, I'm good with this. Like, if you had to pair him with a pitcher who's a little bit worse whip, a little bit ERA, but strikeouts, that would be a good pairing to stabilize everything. George Kirby's just giving you that value um, right there. Ruvain? I have two concerns with him. First concern, although I, everything you said, everything you guys said is correct, but I have two concerns. First concern, his ground ball rate last year was 45.5, 45.5. There's no more shift. Is that going to affect him? That may play into it because he, you know, if he, he keeps getting those balls hit into the ground, that's great. But if they're finding the hole and there are more hits against him, that's not that great. Number two, you mentioned about the innings. Are the Mariners going to try to cap it or slow it down toward the end of the season only because they're expected to maybe make the playoffs? And he's throwing 100, he threw 130 innings last year. Are they going to let him get close to 170, 180, 190? Or are they going to slow him down if they see they're in the playoff race? And those are two things that I get concerned about, but otherwise everything about, you, about him you said is correct. So about the, uh, about the innings thing really quickly, I, if, I generally, I know this sounds kind of wild, I generally don't focus on September innings um, when in, when drafting in March. I think there are so many aspects that can change what happens in September. Uh, it could be a case where they need every starter of George Kirby because they're fighting for a certain playoff spot. It could be a case where I, uh, you know, he got hurt early in the season, so then he's playing later on. Um, for the most part, I think the Mariners. You have to assume. Every five days, George Kirby. We saw Alec Manoa go about 120 innings to 190 plus. And in more scenarios, I see that, especially with these younger guys, the idea of the Strasburg rules are more limited, or at least um, those aren't the cases as much as they used to be. And for a guy like George Kirby, who threw more than 130 innings, because of course, minor league stuff last year, he certainly, you know, once he really hit like 130, 140, I think then the gloves come off. So, so I, no, I, no training wheels. I believe, training wheels are off. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that they're going to just let George Kirby go for the full year. And if you, and playing the game, especially for head-to-head leagues, I get so easy to be like, oh, who has the best September schedules? I'm going to go favor those guys. It can be so difficult to, to plan ahead. Even in June, it can be hard to plan ahead for September. So I try not to focus on it too much. Let's talk about Jeffrey Springs from Tampa Bay showing as about a $3 bargain, according to ATC, which is rather high in this range. He's going in the 12th round. So from a value perspective, so far, he 
looks like a possibility. Uh, he threw 135 innings last year. ATC has him going to 145. Last year, he started off pretty slow, a lot of short two innings, three innings, you know, bullpen-type stuff, and then he went longer and longer. He did not go any time over six innings. He rarely even went into the sixth inning. Um, that's always a concern for me. It, Tampa Bay concerns me having a pitcher there because I don't know that they're going to let the pitchers go long, and to win games, you got to go longer. Uh, ATC projecting 10 wins. I'm a little bit cautious with that. Um, I don't know if I can trust that number. Um, ATC also showing a lot of projections, volatility. Projections are a little bit over the place on him, so that's a little bit of a concern. Tampa Bay pitchers I'm always concerned with in general, but other than that, um, stuff looks good. You know, seems to be able to do it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really have any anything other information other than what I just said. Uh, Nick, uh, are, are you at all interested in Jeffrey Springs? Is this a bargain in uh, in your opinion? And what, what are your thoughts about taking Tampa Bay Rays pitchers in general? Well, uh, I'm conflicted about Jeffrey Springs because Jeffrey Springs, the player, I think is very good. Uh, I still don't love the fact that he doesn't want to wear a rainbow badge uh, and goes out of his way to make that public. But uh, he does struggle against left-handers, oddly enough, as a left-hander. And the reason for that is because his best pitch is his changeup. So he doesn't like to throw lefty on lefty changeups, which means he has to rely more on the slider. The slider isn't as good. He leaves it in the zone uh, too often. So does his four seamer. But what I do generally like, especially against right handers, uh, Springs does throw his four seamer up, his changeup down and away, and his slider down and glove side. And he has amazing pitch separation, which is a really good talent. It's generally something that we don't like to believe in that is command year to year. But when it's this good, I have to be inclined that it's going to stick around and that low walk rate is going to be there. The sub eight hit per nine should stick around as well, which means it's going to be a good whip. The strikeout rate, maybe it isn't 26%, but it's still very productive with a good ERA. When it comes to the Rays pitchers, somebody needs to get the innings. And maybe the Rays think, look, Jeffrey Springs isn't someone that can go six innings consistently. However, he did it multiple times last year. And I think now that he has over 135 innings, Jeffrey Springs should be more consistently going six for the Rays. It's kind of interesting, actually. They have a fair amount of pitchers now that they will trust for six innings. You know, Shane McClanahan and Tyler Glasnow. Maybe Glasnow slows down a little bit because they're worried about the Tommy Johnson. But honestly, I think they'll just let him do it. Drew Rasmussen started to get more um, as well. So I don't really have much pushback against the Rays. I think they will cut him off more so than saying pushing him to 100 pitches in a given start. But we saw games where Jeffrey Springs went over 90 pitches last season, and I don't think that's going to change this year. So I'm not really hesitant going against uh, going after Rays pitchers, not to mention win totals are generally still good despite their quote-unquote limitations. Across 25 starts, he still had nine wins last year in 135 innings. So you still get wins there. Um, in Springs, I think... You know, it depends on where you're getting him in your drafts, but I generally think that he's a good complement for your teams. Okay, moving. Anything to add? Yeah, the, the wins thing is because the Rays bullpen is just so good that when if if they are able to get a lead early, they're usually able to hold it. Um, he, he did pitch, like you said, pitched six innings, but he pitched it only seven times last year out of the 25 starts. Yes, he started slowly, and, and, they, and they had to build him up and everything like that, but he only pitched it seven times. Um, he was a little bit lucky, but you know what? In the last two years, his whip 
1.1 in 20, 2021 in 45 innings and 1.07 in 135 innings. So if you want a guy who will help your whip, I think he's he's a great guy to have. He's great at this spot. He's um, he's not a rookie. He's 30 years old already. He he's, he seems like he's just come into his own, but this is around the time when pitchers do come into their own. They learn how to pitch instead of throw, and he's learning how to do that. And, and Nick, just like you said, if he can learn how to throw to a lefty, throw that changeup to a lefty like in the sweet spot, he'll be a complete pitcher. Yeah. I, I tend to find when I'm doing some of the mock drafts so far that he's available in a nice spot as an SP3. Are you punching that uh, that check mark on, on uh, if it comes up as your SP3 in the 12th round, Nick? I don't know as an SP3. I, okay. I'm generally in the philosophy of getting three that I just absolutely know I'm not going to drop through the entire year. I mean, at least for 12-teamers. 15, I think I might be slightly more aggressive to make sure that Springs, if I were to get him, would be SP4. Okay. Uh, okay. But uh, I mean, I think again, though, he's solid uh, for your fantasy teams. Okay. So a little bit cautious, but general uh, a positive outlook. Okay. Yes. Uh, let's talk about another Rays pitcher while we're at it, Drew Rasmussen, who I think is also undervalued. Uh, trust him a little bit more because he's done the nice ratio thing now two years in a row. Um, he does walk a bit more than Springs. Uh, strikeout rate is not nearly enough. Um, but. You know, hey, he, he, he seems pretty consistent. Uh, same comment with, with Rasmussen, 10 wins. I, I don't know. Is he going to last deep into games? Maybe the Rays are starting to do it more. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I see him as you – know, I, 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 they're both going in about the same round, and it's sort of developing into a hot spot. So to me, I think that if you're waiting another two rounds, 14th round – Maybe somebody is left there. Maybe that's the play. Get one of these guys as your SP4 in you know two, three rounds later because if there's enough pitchers available in that round, somebody will push, be pushed down. Uh, maybe that's the way to play it. But uh, I have no problem with taking Drew Rasmussen. I, I think he the, this undervalued by about two, three dollars is legit. Yeah, I'm buying. I'm buying in here. Um, uh, five of his last six games, Rasmussen went six innings uh, for the Rays last year. PLV loves him. I mean, just absolutely adores his stuff uh, and locations. I mean, it, it, we're, we're a fan of him here um, with both his fastball and his cutter above average and slider as well. Those are his three primary pitches. And we saw last year these moments where his cutter and slider were getting a ton of whiffs. I mean, he would have 18 whiffs on a given night. And it would just blow guys away. And then the next time he wouldn't be able to locate in the same fashion and it would frustrate me endlessly. I really think there's another tier here for him to hit, another gear for Rasmussen, where he can turn that 21% strikeout rate to a 25% one consistently. But meanwhile, he's a good hit suppressor. Um, he has filthy stuff, and the Rays know how to use it. Don't expect him to really be an eight-inning guy. I think the Rays have a belief that Rasmussen is only so good for so many pitches. But maybe Rasmussen gets better at that. The more he throws, the more that he stretches himself out and doesn't go through fatigue. Uh, and those pitches can be at a high level through games. So I like Rasmussen more than Jeffrey Springs, and I've already found him on a couple teams of mine. All right, good uh, vote of confidence. I love him. I actually like him a lot. He is very good. He's um, he only went. He actually pitched into the ninth inning one game, which is crazy for a raised pitcher. But his walk rate was ridiculous, five point three percent, and his career is six point eight percent for a walk rate. I'll, I'll take that every day. That And his whole run to fly ball rate last year was 9%. So maybe that was a little bit lucky. So maybe there's some regression there. But because he's got a almost, he's got a 47% ground ball rate, you know, that 9% home run to fly ball rate, maybe 
true. Maybe 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 to keep it close to that. If he is, this is a great guy to have in this level because again, he's just like Jeffrey Springs. He's playing on a good team. He will get you. He'll be. He'll be. He'll, he'll, he will put the Rays in position to get wins for him as long as the bullpen holds it. So Drew Rasmussen, uh, his whip last year in the last couple of years sub one ten. The projections for next year have him almost at one point two. So even if he doesn't, even if he regresses downward, you're still getting an accretive value, right? The, the bargain assumes a worse whip. He actually might be better than that. So I, I kind of like that as well. Yeah, there's a, there's something interesting, too, about, you know, we have our PLV model, and we're saying, based on every pitch, how well does a hitter perform, right? Based on these pitches, are you performing worse or better than our expectations? And for the last two years, Rasmussen has well overperformed on the hitter performance side. That is making hitters look much worse than we expect them to for two straight years. So clearly there's, there's something in our model that is actually liking Rasmussen less than it should, which is fascinating to me because it already loves him. So it, it just, you know, 93rd percent in bad pitch rate. And yet the hitter performance is still saying that batters performed worse than we expect them to. It's fascinating. Uh, I just wanted to give one more thing on Drew Rasmussen about how good this season could be for him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there you go. All right, let's move on to ex-Met Chris Bassett. I'll let Ruvain talk first about uh, this guy we no longer will see over at City Field. Well, you mentioned about whether or not you shouldn't put any 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 stock into the fact about players team uh, pitchers changing teams. He's going from the Mets in a good park to Toronto, which is not a great park, into the AL East, which is not a great division. But a couple things play into this. First of all, even though they're bringing the walls in in Toronto just a little bit, his ground ball rate is near forty nine percent, so he may not have to worry about that too much. Even though he's in the AL East, he doesn't have to face the Yankees or Rays nineteen the the, the Blue Jays. They don't have to face the Yankees or Rays nineteen times because of the change schedule. So just because he's changing leagues, going to a quote-unquote tougher division, I wouldn't put any stock into that. He is a workhorse. He is an innings eater. Uh, he used his curve more last year than ever. Um, he used his changeup less, so he found something there. But again, he also had to ha- work out diff- different signs, and I don't know how that's going to work because he has on, with the pitch clock, he has seven different pitches to go to, so he has to really try to hone in on maybe a couple more and make those a little bit better instead of using his entire repertoire. Yeah, you're not going to get the ridiculous strikeouts from him. Yes, he's going to a worse ballpark, so you know the ERA is going to go up. That should be baked into your projection originally. But the key is the innings, 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 innings. He had 182 last year. He would have had more the previous year, but for he was hit in the head by a pitch, right? And that knocked literally knocked him out for a yeah. while. So fluke injuries, nothing, nothing dealing with his arms or legs or anything. Um, I'll read off his dollar value accumulated over the last three years. He was a $12 player last year, before that 18 before that $16. He's going for an auction equivalent of just 9 Um, You know, I, it's, he's a guy who's holding value, but he's not a sexy player because he doesn't uh, have a lot of the strikeouts. He's just uh, a category filler. He's just a guy who's a uh, very reliable workhorse, and you need those innings in your portfolio. And we talked about some of those raised pitchers. None of them were projected anywhere near where Bassett can get to 180. So from that standpoint, he is interesting to me. Uh, I'd like a little bit more of a discount than I'm seeing. Um, I, he's going in the 11th. Maybe if he's available in the 12th, 13th with those other gentlemen that we just talked about. Uh, but in general, I'm, I'm okay with him. I don't see much downside. Nick, do you agree? 
Yeah, I go back and forth on Chris Bassett. Uh, I I am a little scared about the Blue Jays because what I we saw is a lot of those guys, uh, Jose Brios and Kevin Gosman, both had the worst hit luck, while <laughs> Alec Manoa had one of the best. And it's very odd. And then you're you're talking about Rogers Center being one of the most hitter friendly parks in the majors now, and I get a little worried, especially I'm going to be a little ageist that Chris yeah, that's Bassett. True is going to get worse over time instead of better. And he doesn't have now, the strike he, has to compensate. Exactly. It's a 22% last year for Chris Bassett. And he had that really rough part in the beginning of, say, like June, I believe it was. And then he got much better and felt like he should be good. I have him around the 30s, and I kind of want to push him closer back to the Drew Rasmussen, uh, Jeffrey Springs area. Because I don't know if you really want to lean on Bassett through the full year. I think he might be what I call a Toby, which is you were kind of mid to upper threes pitcher with a 20% strikeout rate and a whip around 120. And I think it's much closer to that than I want to admit. That said, the sinker is an incredible CSW pitch, 35%, which you just don't see super high called strikes on it. Um, PLV likes it uh, for the most part um, in that respect. Um, just above average, uh, more so than not. You have a cutter and slider that he has increased usage on over the years, and those could be more strikeout threats for him as he does save his four-seamer, four-two-strike counts. That's why he had a 15% swing striker, which is shocking, but it's just 13% usage. I mean, Chris Bassett just threw it in two-strike counts, and that, that's how he uses it. There's also this curveball that we love. Uh, Eno's model loves it. Ours does, too. It's one of those things that he should be throwing more often. He did this past year, but we think there's still even another tier for that for Chris Bassett. So I kind of shrug a little bit. I find myself not going after Bassett because there are other guys I want to go for at the same time. Say like Joe Ryan is a good example for me. And I find myself, if I get Joe Ryan, then I don't feel like I need to get Chris Bassett. Um, I could also likely get Pablo Lopez um, a little bit like round later or so. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's better in my view too. Also with the twins, I'd rather that than... Uh, than with the Blue Jays at this moment. So I go back and forth on this one. If you're in a situation where you got some risky pitchers, say like you get like Blake Snell and Tyler Glasnow, you might want to lean on a Chris Bassett then to, to ensure that you have a good amount of volume and you aren't going to have like a 4-5 pitcher or so. Um, but I find myself gravitating away, and I probably will be uh, lowering him just a little bit uh, my updated rankings. One thing to add, though, he goes deep into games. He has got a better chance to win because of that. He's playing on a what's going to be a good team, a good offensive team as well. Uh, we're at the point in fantasy where, you know, we always said never chase wins and all that. Um, and I think we were, we were at first pitch, and Rob Silver gets up and puts on a whole presentation of why we should chase wins. Um, and Chris Bassett is going to fall into that mold. He's a guy with innings. He's a guy who's going to be deep into a game on a good team. Um, if, you know, I, I think that Bassett has a better chance to win more games than any of the, the other sure. race pitchers that we mentioned. And wins are hard to come by. It's a fact. It's I don't, I don't like chasing wins, but when push comes to shove in players of a similar, similar category with acceptable ERAs and whips, especially those who are workhorses, um, for a guy who has a more propensity to win games, that's a, that's a big thing for me. He won 15 games last year. Uh, ATC showing 12 wins, which is actually very high. Uh, there are very few pitchers who are, are going to show more than 12 expected wins. Uh, so 
it's it's something to put in the back of your head as you fill up your component your 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 roster. If you're picking a lot of guys who are not on winning teams, Bassett could be a filler for you. Like he might be the right complement on a certain portfolio of pitchers. Uh, if if you are picking ones that aren't on those teams, just, just saying here, another thing to consider. Definitely. Um, you mentioned Pablo Lopez. Well, he's the next pitcher on our list. He's about a $2 bargain according to the ATC projections. Oh, by the way, some, um, somebody asked me uh, uh, on Twitter, you know, when I say the bargain, what does that mean? Uh, what do you mean according to market? V- very simply, what I do is I take the ATC projections. It equates to a dollar amount in an auction setting. I take what the ADP is, and I translate that based on a curve to what – you would pay in an auction, right? And I just subtract the two. Very simple like that. Uh, I, I could do the same thing, too. I can convert ATC dollar amount to an ADP level, but I, I like thinking in terms of numbers because you can subtract numbers. You can't really subtract ADP. Uh, so Pablo Lopez, new team, new environment. He was excellent last year. The ERA went up a little bit. I think his ERA, though, is closer to what he did last year than what he showed the year before. He's not a 3 ERA guy. He's closer to a 3.75 ERA guy. Uh, I think this is really his level, what he showed. Um, the health. He, the concern is the health, the shoulder. Is it going to hold up? Let's go to Ruvain first on Pablo Lopez because he's another one of those pitchers that I think the skills are there. It's just whether he'll hold up. And what do you say about it? I think he held up, and I think he will hold up this year. I don't see, I don't see why not, except for the fact he's going to a team that was riddled by injuries last year in their, in their pitching staff, and I don't know if the Twins know that well how to monitor the pitching staff. It's not a knock on the Twins. It's it's just a matter of what what was seen, that there's so many pitchers that went down for them. It, it happens all through baseball. It's not just the Twins. But the fact that he's going to the Twins, um, it, it's it's that it's good that he's, he's in a better division, but he threw 180 innings last year. That's the most he's ever thrown in his career. Could he do? Could he duplicate that? It's possible, but I mean, he, he is only 26, so there, there's the possibility that he could do it again, and this is just the beginning of, of hopefully a very good career. But listen, he can turn out to be a Chris Bassett-like. He can be that type of workhorse if he stays healthy. And I and I probably prefer, just like Nick, you said, I prefer Pablo Lopez over Chris Bassett because of the situation he's in and because of the fact that he can throw 180 innings. Even if he goes to 375 ERA, I'll, t- I'll take that with 180 innings for my number three starter. I'll be perfectly happy with that. You know, his strikeout rate also went down by by four percent. That was a little bit of a flag, call it a red orange flag maybe. And uh, the walk rate uh, went up. So I don't know, Nick. Uh, you said before that you were consider him. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, so when it comes to an SP three, uh, I'm just thinking. Let's say it's 15 teamer. That's essentially through as uh, SP forty five. However, my draft strategy is to be a little aggressive on the guys like once again around uh sp 20 through 40 uh to make sure that i leave there with four as opposed to three so if i am going to have pablo lopez it won't be my sp3 um in uh in 15 teamers i i love his changeup. i think the the twins know that what i don't like about pablo lopez is that the cutter and the curveball have not developed over the years and his four-seamer has become more of a uh, necessity than we've liked for him to have. While its command isn't great, he gets control, 71% strike rate on it. But as far as where he locates, we don't love it so much. It's a lot of just a scatter shot inside the zone. And I think Pablo Lopez can do more with it. But the changeup he throws against righties and lefties, you love to see that. The 375 ERA, well, just don't start him against the Mets and you're fine. Um, especially considering he's in the AL Central now with the Twins. 
I think you'll see better than a 10 and 10 record. But yeah, health, what is going to happen there? Maybe I'm not actually baking that in enough. Uh, we'll see if Pablo Lopez can survive a full year. But the fact that he just did it, you know, we had some shoulder questions. And the fact that you survived, I think, is a really good indication of its health. Generally, a shoulder that would be damaged would not allow you to do that. So I'm in uh, for the most part on Pablo Lopez. I think the changeup is good enough. The four-seamer is good enough. There is always a chance that now being in a different organization, the Twins say, hey, how actually this is how you should be throwing that curveball or cutter or he learns it from somebody else, gets a sweeper that Joe Ryan has been working on. I have no idea. Um, but I love the fact that he's moving to Minnesota. I think that it just helps him out. And, I, yeah, I think I'm in with, on Pablo Lopez. I feel like his 375 was the worst that we'll see. For his ERA, so I'm in. Let's do the next two together. I've got Alex Cobb, and then we've got Alex Wood. So a bunch of uh, Alex's on the Giants. Nick, I'll, I'll let you go first. Uh, you mentioned those names earlier. Are you interested in those? So okay, everybody loves talking about how unlucky Alex Cobb was last year, and I get it. I really do. You see, you know, 373 ERA, but the FIP was 280. Oh my gosh. 338 Babbitt, but guess what? His hit luck was just plus five. That's five more hits than he should have allowed. And when you think about what Alex Cobb actually does, he's a sinker baller with a sinker that gets hit really hard. I mean, this is not something that's just like, oh no, I'm really good at mitigating hard contact. No, 30% hard contact on it. Its expected average last year was around 250, which is much, which is lower than the 281. But it's generally trying to be as called strike pitch. It's trying to sneak in there. 29% called strike rate is going to go down for Alex Cobb next year. Then he has a curveball that he tries to sneak in early in counts. And really, 85% of his curveballs were in early counts last year. He's just trying to use it as a show-me pitch. It worked like that. But when people make contact, well, you know, 35% hard contact, which is 15th percentile for curveballs. You're not supposed to hit curveballs well. Guys did it off of Alex Cobb. So what do you know? The whole thing is reliant on a splitter. And if you know me, I hate trusting pitchers with splitters as their primary go-to pitch. Because splitters are the most inconsistent pitch in baseball. Throwing them, it's not like you go to the same spot you do with your seam on the seam every time. It fits in your hand just a little bit differently every time you go to it. Some days it's there and you've got it. And some days it isn't. And when Cobb doesn't have a splitter, the thing as they call it, well, it's just sinker curveball, and that's going to be so rough. And I generally just don't like going after this. I think people are expecting way too big of a swing for Alex Cobb. 130 whip last year, 126 in 2021. I, I don't really expect a 115 whip all of a sudden. I don't expect a 26% K rate. He hasn't been above 25%. It just seems like too much of an ask for Alex Cobb, and I'm generally staying away, especially considering the Giants' defense wasn't good last year. I don't really have a good reason to say that it's going to be much better this upcoming season so sure he could work out but it could also very much not and i think they're just better guys to go for yeah really good analysis there uh you know two things that remind me of what you said is uh the show me pitch of uh dylan bundy tried to do that oh first man pitch, right oh yeah he was doing it so effectively but guys know guys quickly know like, okay cool early in the count just look for a curveball and if you don't get one that's why the sinker gets in there called strike rate but then later in the count now it's just guessing sinker splitter because you won't see the curveball yeah, and you know he he had that really high BABIP last year, but you mentioned at the top of the show that the Giants have a crappy defense last year, and 
I kind of think they're going to also have a crappy defense this year, which means you'll probably also expect a high BABIP, right? It's it's unlucky compared to a, a, a MLB neutral context, but on the same team, you'll have it. That's why you have BABIPs like in, in Colorado. You're always going to have high BABIPs. It's the park, right? Um, right. On, on the turf in uh, Toronto, you're always going to have high BABIPs, right? If you're still pitching in that park, it doesn't mean that you were lucky last year. You're going to have a higher BABIP, so just— just to point that out. But but Alex Cobb and Alex Wood are both going to be playing the Dodgers and the and the Padres less. They're going to be playing other 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 divisions more. So that you know that may negate a lot of the about the bad because their hitters they're going to face are not going to be at the same quality. My issue with both of them is always injury. I mean, Alex Cobb, he, he threw 150 innings last year. He's only pitched over 160 innings twice since 2011. Okay, I don't love that. Um, if 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 I'm going after a guy here and he, and he's an injury risk, um, and look at Alex Wood. Alex Wood also he doesn't he will give you 130 innings maybe. I I, I don't know. Just just look at the whole San Francisco Giant rotation. You have Alex Cobb who's 35 who gets injured very often. You have Sean Manaya who gets injured very often. He's 31. You have Alex Wood who's been injured. He's 32. You have Russ Stripling who's 31. And the, the ace of the staff is Logan Webb who's 26. Yeah, that, that whole staff is not... The team there, I don't know how they're trying to build it. It's not definitely not built around pitching, I'll tell you that. Um, I think they're going to try to build it more around their bullpen, if anything. I mean, that's that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. Alex Wood, um, I, I also very cautious. The only thing going for him, though, is he's sort of really cheap he's going in the 24th round of nfbc drafts if you're in a 12 team league he's free so you know you take him if he's not going well you drop him right it, uh, guys who could have something going and you know again it, alex wood he's gonna he's gonna play until he's injured right if he's healthy at the start of the season you take him worst thing in the world is you drop him and the the cost of acquisition was low so to me it's a chance for a high return on investment on wood because the price is so low and the the playing time is gonna be front loaded right you don't have to have him sitting on your bench and wait until he picks up the, the, the value later. It's right away. So low investment, front-loaded, usually are good investments. So I, I'd consider him for that. Uh, if I'm in the snake round of the NFBC, and, you know, why, why not? Uh, it's it, decent enough skills and decent enough strikeouts to to go on my bench and give me a shot as my seventh starter here and there. You know, I'm, I'm good with that. One more picture before sure. we do a couple of mailbag questions is another ex-Met, Stephen Matz. Looks like the ex-Mets are getting it today. Uh, Ruvain, uh, what about our boy Stephen Matz, who only threw 48 innings last year? Oi. That's all. That's that's the best way to to put it up. He has <laughs> he has potential. He's never pitched more than 160 innings. Uh, he did it once, I think, in, in 2019. Um, he only started in 15 games last year. He had a torn MCL that he played with without any surgery. Usually, torn M- MCLs. It's a ligament in the knee. Usually, that does not require surgery. Usually, that just requires rest, which is why he didn't play that much. Um, but it's still torn, and there's scar tissue that that heals it up, which means that it could crop up at any time. He also dealt with left shoulder impingement. Had a cortisone injection he had also a shoulder injury in 2020 he had a forearm injury in 2019 i I, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to see rostering steven mats on any of my teams all right (laughs) do you have a positive outlook on mats uh nick oh i absolutely do actually um the way i see it 
is uh, you got to keep in mind, too, also, that there's different strategies, of course, for 12 and 15 teamers, right? Um, and with 12 teamers, something I really, really focus on a lot is treating your draft like it's not a best ball league and understanding that your first four or five pitchers are really the ones that you want to hold on to. And then the ones that you draft after that are part of the whole churn and burn of the year. And uh, so guys like Alex Cobb and Alex Wood, they don't have good favorable starts at the beginning of the year. I don't want to chase that because if I'm drafting a guy and not starting him at the beginning of the year, then what am I doing? I'll just get him off the wire later on. Uh, and the same does apply for Steven Matz as the Cardinals get the Jays and then they get Atlanta after. And that's just not a start I want to make. That said, PLV adores uh, Steven Matz. Uh, they love his sinker. They love his changeup. They love his curveball. And it does make me wonder if Steven Matz can stay on the field, how much of a discount he could be. He's someone in my 12-teamers that I'm not getting right away, but I am watching. I am certainly curious to see how he performs in those early starts, even though it might not be a bottom line that you really love. Maybe it's like 5.1 innings and 300 runs or something like that. I might pick him up afterwards once the matchups go a little bit easier than the Jays and Atlanta. So 15 teamers, if I have to get in at some point, if I'd last pick of the draft or so and I need another pitcher, sure, why not? I don't expect to actually hold on to that pick through the year. But if it's a DC or something like that, I understand the concerns about health and all of it. Sure, absolutely. You know, the way I see it is just, just kind of, hey, can he pitch well at all? No, then yeah, we just throw him out of the way. So it's free money to play with. And Steven Matz, I think, can be much better than uh you know what you see last year of a 525 ERA. Keep in mind, entering last year, Steven Matz was a hot topic. You go into St. Louis and he has a ground ball tendency and he has this really good defense behind him and a good situation. Steven Matz is you know, a lot of people's sleepers and he he's hurt and doesn't really perform as well as we want him to. And now he's completely thrown away. I I think there's something there uh with Steven Matz. I don't want to completely ignore him. So keep an eye on Steven Matz early in the season. Yeah, I tend to agree. It's uh, de- it's very dependent on the type of format of your league. But yeah, it's 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 definitely a watch guy. See what he's doing and see see what his health is to start the season. Couple of good mailbag questions. Start with Michael Smith, who asks, "Hey, this guy might be considered free in draft, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on Ryan Nelson. I wanted him to pitch, and he seemed fearless pounding the zone. All right, any interest in Ryan Nelson?" Oh, yeah. Uh, fastball's really good. Um, I also saw moments where his slider and curveball actually worked, and he was able to take down the Padres and the Dodgers last year. The only question, of course, is the health. He was shut down early in the season. I do wonder if he does get the opportunity for the Diamondbacks out of the gate. There is an open fifth spot there. Ryan Nelson and Dre Jameson are going to be fighting for that. Brandon Fought, too. Brandon Fought might be the one, ultimately, that they go with, um, but... We'll see if Bumgarner and Davies can stay healthy and on the field or at least worthy of the time for Arizona. You might see Ryan Nelson just kind of get a job and stick with it through the year. So I'm really curious to see how he performs in the spring and to see if he can get a job out of camp. Yeah, there's a spot open. That really depends. If he gets a spot, then he becomes very, very interesting. And he did pitch. He did pitch over 150 total innings last year. He did pitch 136 innings in the minors last year, even though he only had 18 in the majors. So it's not point. like if he makes the team, he's just they're gonna shut him down after a certain period of time. He's a guy who can pitch you 150, 160 innings if he gets the opportunity. By the way, it's not a starting pitcher question, but what is, what is Arizona doing in their bullpen? 
Do you have any guesses, Nick? Because uh, <laughs> ATC is showing four different guys with seven seven saves. Like we we have no idea what's going on. It's like uh, you know your guess is as good as mine. Just spin a wheel and spin a dreidel. It's got four sides, and whatever it lands on is the answer. <laughs> do you have the any answer thoughts? is follow Rick Graham in season, and he'll tell you exactly what to do. Um, but uh, but yeah, never bet against Mark Melanson. Never do that. All right, there you go. <laughs> Settled on that one. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's see. Jim asks, any potential breakout pitchers you notice about to make a big leap in innings? I really like Christian Javier and Jeffrey Springs for that reason. Sure. Um, I mean, I'll throw in Grayson Rodriguez. You'll see that. Yeah. I think you can get innings. How about uh, Ronzi Contreras? That could be interesting. Uh, and anybody else to add? Well, Ronzi Contreras has got to have a better fastball first. Forty percent hard contact last year, which is terrible. Oh boy, the, the you know I never want to see a four there. I mean, I get hesitant seeing a three um, to start. Well, the, que- the question was about innings. Can you name me the? Uh, can you oh name right, me four, of course. Can oh, you yeah. name me four starters on on the Pirates? Yes, uh, Mitch Keller, uh, JT Brubaker, uh, Ronzi Contreras. Um, Luis Ortiz, Johan Aviedo, but they're in the rotation. There are two other guys in there somewhere. Is Rich Hill gonna gonna try for that? <laughs> Rich Hill, there it is. There it is. Uh, and there's a yeah. fifth one. Uh, uh, I can't remember. Contreras should get the innings. Is is <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, you're right. right. Two, um, questions about whether he can succeed, but he'll get the opportunity. Is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Um, someone to consider. Andrew Painter might get a job quickly for the Phillies, um, who could be a huge impact there. Reed Detmers is someone I'm circling a lot. I think when you think of the mold of a pitcher. Um, really taking a a big step in that second year. He's someone who went down to the minors halfway through the season and retooled his slider. It was amazing. It got whiffs. I think he got a little fatigued by the end of the year. But he's going to get the opportunity for them. He has the repertoire. He has the slider that gets whiffs. He has a big curveball, which is a fantastic pitch to throw at any moment. And he has a fastball. He loves to elevate and get whiffs there. There's something special about Reed Demers. I think he's 23 right now, so... This is really the opportunity for him. Uh, he's the first one that comes to mind. Mackenzie Gore is going to hopefully get innings. I mean, he gets the opportunity at least in in Washington, as long as he's healthy and pitching. Uh, Mackenzie Gore, remember him? That could be a very fascinating one too. I um, let's. I know there are many others, and they're just all fading right now. I, I just want Tyler McGill to pitch again. Honestly, um, yeah, that's a fun one. Yes. Uh, oh yeah, Garrett Whitlock is circled everywhere. Why he gets the Pirates first? So you draft Garrett Whitlock as your last pick, and you get a start out of him. That's pretty cool, and you get to see what he's added and developed while also getting the value of the Pirates. So you don't have to wait after they make their first start. You can be the person that gets in before it and then move on from there if you don't like it. That's the kind of situations I love jumping on, and Garrett Whitlock is a perfect one. What about two, what about two Cubs pitchers, Keegan Thompson and Justin Steele? I think oh, those two Justin, guys can make jumps uh, in innings. I, I, they, they were very good last year. So, first of all, you got to say, like, Justin Steele. That's the only way you say his name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I want to make sure that's clear. <laughs> uh, really good slider. Ugh, fastball. Um, I don't know if that fastball is good enough. That's the only hesitation I have with Steele. I know the strikeout rate was better than we expected last season. I have those question marks about the fastball. And there really isn't much else there. Uh, Keegan Thompson... I don't think the, the repertoire is deep enough. Hayden Wisniewski is an interesting one. It just, is he going to get the opportunity or not? If he does, Wisniewski's stuff is legit. One of the better breaking balls you'll see from these uh, youngins these days. So I, I'm very curious there. It's just about the opportunity. 
The next question was uh, about Andrew Painter. Uh, you got to believe. How high should I draft Andrew pa- Andrew Painter if I want if I want him? Yeah, I was uh, I was actually talking to someone very smart in the industry earlier today about Andrew Painter, who's saying I, he really wants to get in on him, and I kind of want to as well. It's really tough though. You likely have to wait until May to see Andrew Painter. They're probably going to go with Falter out of the gates, uh, and then you'll see Painter show up in May for whatever reason. But that means you're you're really selling out for that. Games in April are when roster spots are the most valuable. There are so many different guys you go off and chase that you would have missed last year if you were holding on to somebody else and then just didn't pan out, right? And there's no guarantee that Andrew Painter is amazing right away. But you're thinking, oh, man, Strider and Javier. I would have told you last year to not roster either of those two guys the first week of the season because they didn't have jobs and I had no idea when it was going to happen. I didn't know if they were actually going to fulfill it at that time. And that's kind of how we have to feel about Andrew Painter right now. Grayson Rodriguez, fine. I think he's going to have an opening day job. Painter, I don't know. So I'm okay going after him at late in drafts to see how the Phillies are going to exit camp. Who knows? Maybe it's not Falter. And the Phillies just say the Painter's just the best. And we want, we need every win we can get with Atlanta and the Mets here. We're just going to go with Painter. I would love if they did that. But uh, it's a little bit of a mystery box at this moment. You don't want to hold on to something while all these other good guys are going off and doing great things. And then he shows up in May and it just isn't as great as you want it to be. So it's a really tough call. So if you're in a draft and hold, maybe you take a shot on him. Oh, yes. Very much in there. Yeah. But a t- but a team with a smaller bench, it's hard to hold on to him. I mean, you, right. it's, right. it's like if it's a, pos- a position player, it may be a little bit different. But I think for a pitcher, because he's only nineteen, he's nineteen. Yeah. You hold on to a nineteen-year-old yeah. pitcher from, from draft day and hold on to May, till May June and hope he hits. You know, you can use that roster spot some way, another way. You know. Right. Talking redraft here, of course. But yeah, yes, yes. obviously. All right. Let's do another one or two questions. Uh, Hunter Brown getting a, getting some buzz now. Um, oh yeah. Uh, your buddy uh, Lance McCullers Jr. said that he ain't going to be ready for opening day, and who knows when he'll start. I mean, he's fickle with the hi- injury history. Hunter Brown gaining a lot of traction now, uh, gaining helium. What are your thoughts on Hunter Brown? Uh, I go back and forth on this. I think Hunter Brown should be drafted a lot. I mean, right now he's he was in my the middle of the 60s before even the word that Lance McCullers was not going to be ready for opening day. Now it seems pretty clear that Hunter Brown is in there, and then maybe he just sticks around as another six-man for the Astros, right? Uh, so it's hard not to be in, enthused by this. I would probably have him around the I don't know, early 50s in my rankings at the moment. Um, the problem is that Hunter Brown doesn't get whiffs on his four-seamer, and it was more of a ground ball pitch last year, which is very strange. His command also, to me, was not exceptional. So there have been a lot of comparisons, and you see the, the flashy numbers. Remember Tanner Houck, how we were really excited about that? He had a 30% K rate and all. And we thought entering this entering last year that he was going to do all the wonderful things, and he's just like Chris Sale and all. And it happens a lot. Guys come up and have a couple good starts, and that's it. And we don't really see that replicated the next year. So I'm not necessarily sold that it's going to happen. But again, he's at the range. Again, I'm, I'm talking in 12-teamers, so keep that in mind. But he's in the range where I have the sturdy guys, and I'm trying to find the ones that I want to take a chance on that could become legitimate guys for me instead of going for the more secure, decent but not exceptional starter. You can find those on the waiver wire in a 12-teamer. So for Hunter Brown, yeah, he's going to be around 52, 53 for me, right around, I guess, Kodai Senga and 
just right behind Jeffrey Springs, I think. Mm, interesting. Uh, I think Springs I have higher than than Brown, but yeah, he's he's totally ro- rosterable even in a twelve team setting. He's definitely rosterable in a fifteen team setting on a good team. Uh, the strikeout rate, I mean, it could be exceptionally high, but you're right. The lack of whiffs are a little concerning that he can sustain that. Although, I mean, th- maybe that means that he has a 24% strikeout rate, not a 27. So that's still good. The The right. walk rate is atrocious, though. It could be it could be 10%. I have got some models that are showing a 12% walk rate. That would yeah. be, ooh, that would be bad. Uh, so, yeah, there's some high-risk, high-reward. But, again, you're not paying a ridiculous price for him. He's going, you know, 18th round or so in NFBC currently. And there was and, and there was a video of him actually of him pitching to Jose Altuve today, and he turned Altuve into a pretzel. So he his stuff is legit. It's just a matter of you know being able to keep it through a whole season. Last question: Where does from uh, Warm Bud Light? Zach asks, where does Bradish fit? Is, is it Bradish or Bradish? How do you pronounce it? Uh, it's Bradish. All right, Bradish. I got it right. Uh, where does he fit in the O's rotation? Lots of moving parts in Baltimore, but the balanced schedule this year gives me plenty of hope for success. Uh, you, you already had one Orioles rotation guy on your show the other the other day. <laughs> Cole you Irvin, oh, he's such Irvin. a good guy. You I heard that. I heard the podcast. The Very good show. Oh, thank you, Ariel. So, what do you think about Brad? And, and by the way, about mispronouncing names. Um, you, you guys know that I call Jacob DeGrum DeGrum and his really DeGrom, right? And I <laughs> oh, no, I've comment- messed up. Uh, it's a joke about me messing up names all the time, so it, it's hard to keep track with it all. Oh, well, for me, I mean, I call him DeGrom the bum because he snubbed my kids at spring training. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, a, that's intentional. I don't know if you guys know this. That I, um, Yeah, he, he, uh, we don't like him in the Cohen house. We, we're happy he's off the Mets because he didn't say hello to my kids, so I call him DeGrom the bum, so he's Jacob DeGrom. From from uh, huh. forever for me. So there you go. Yeah. It's not a mispronunciation because I don't know the pronunciation. I do it on purpose. So uh, what, what do you think about Bradish this year in the Orioles rotation, Nick? So the problem with Bradish for me is when he had success last year, was when the curveball and the slider both were exceptional, and his fastball didn't burn him. I worry a lot about that fastball. It has cut action on it, which generally, from a aesthetic perspective, is really nice to look at. A little extra little drop at the end there. But if it is has just a little extra drop, that's not a good thing in my view. If you remember, Corbin Burns was not good for a while with that four seamer. He was a home run machine. And that makes sense because his four seamer had cut action on, on it. And then when he leaned into a full-on cutter, then he was able to miss under the bat. And think about it this way. When you throw a four seamer, you're trying to miss above the barrel of the bat. When you throw a sinker, you're trying to miss under the bat. And when you have a four-seamer that adds a little extra drop than it should, you're falling into the barrel of the bat. And I think that's what's happening with Cal Bradish's four-seamer. So if he changes that and actually leans into that movement to accentuate it, so then instead of going into the barrel, it goes underneath it like a proper cutter, then we're talking here. But until I see that from Bradish, which I haven't yet, I can't buy in on this. There's also the question of the consistency of those breaking balls that have been very good in the past but not consistently through all of last year, has me out on Kyle Bradish, despite the good park now because of left field, despite the offense likely being better this year than it was last season. So I'm out. Yeah, I don't buy pitchers that have an ATC ERA in the mid-fours with a 1-3 whip and a K-minus BB of 13%. So um, that's, that's my quick analysis of no thank you. Ruben? I, 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 I agree. He may be able to be a guy you can stream certain certain 
you know, certain matchups, but I, I think he's a guy you really want to stay away from. All right. Well, that takes us uh, to the injury report. Uh, hey, Ruvain, I'm sure you got plenty of starters to talk about. Let's say you. I got plenty, so I'll start with Aaron Ashby. We mentioned him earlier in the show. Actually, Nick did. Um, Craig Council said that Ashby will be out for a couple of months. Ashby then himself came out and said he hopes for mid-May return. So what do you get from that? I have no idea. It was originally diagnosed as left shoulder fatigue, then then diagnosed as inflammation, which is basically almost the same thing because you get fatigue because there's inflammation and what came first, the chicken or the egg. They said mid-May return. You want to book you want to book that? Um, I, I don't. I wouldn't be 100% on that. Kenta Maeda had Tommy John surgery in 2021. He has no restrictions. He already had his first bullpen session. He's 34, so I don't expect there to be any. Uh, holding anything holding him back for innings pitch so I think he's a guy that if you're looking for late a guy for to bounce back from injury I think he's a guy you have to look for sleeper. Mike Soroka I'm sorry injury sleeper yeah very big injury sleeper very big injury sleeper another guy who I would say is an injury sleeper but he came to camp injured and that's Mike Soroka um, he had the Achilles issue, then he had a little bit of an elbow thing and now he came to camp with left hamstring tightness and discomfort He's a little bit behind the rest of the pitchers. They may try to ease him in anyway, but he's a guy also, just keep him in the back of your mind. He may be available late, very, very late. You may see him on the waiver wire. He may be a guy you may want, may want to pick up once he's fully healthy. Tanner Houck, he is on track to start the season. Just so everyone knows, Houck had a lumbar discectomy at the end of last season. That means he had a part of his lumbar, one of the lumbar discs were partially removed, so he has less pain, so he's able to move better. And Garrett Whitlock also is on track. He had arthroscopic surgery on his right hip. So he's right now being eased into fielding drills while he's already throwing off the mound. So that's good for him. And what's not good is Frankie Montas. Frankie Montas underwent arthroscopic right shoulder surgery earlier this spring already um the surgery was to clean out his right labrum they did not touch the rotator cuff they said he can begin a throwing program in 12 weeks yeah montas uh over under 15 innings for the year Ruvain. i'm gonna have to say under only because shoulders are a lot harder to navigate than elbows elbows you have a little bit better idea but shoulders very iffy. You never know if they're going to be setbacks. There will be setbacks because if you have a shoulder injury, your mind thinks, okay, I'm not going to put so much stress on the shoulder. I'll start working, you know, have a diff slightly different windup. Then it'll start affecting the forearm. It could be a very slippery slope for Frankie Montas. Yeah, you're not drafting him this year. So cross him off your boards. There you go. All right. Well, that this has been a fantastic show, and obviously you guys uh, uh, see why Nick Pollock is the best in the business at the pitchers uh, running. Oh, and, stop it, Ariel. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> running pitcher list. Uh, really great stuff. Uh, Nick, thanks for coming on, and why don't you tell us uh, where we can see all of your work and anything else new? I know you, you mentioned a bunch of stuff at the top, but uh, what else you got going? Well, thanks so much, Ariel. Really, this is such a pleasure coming on this show with you guys. Um, you do such a great job with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we uh, we just released uh, PL8. That is the eighth edition of our website. We have MLB percentiles for every single stat on our player pages with GIFs of every single pitch updated, um, as well as our PLV stat, which you can access. We have uh, PL Pro with our live draft assistant tool, our 2023 player projections, and of course, we'll have also the DFS projections as well with PL Pro, access to our Discord, ad-free website, all that fun stuff. But yeah, I mean, I'm just going to be talking about pitching forever, and that's really cool, so come on down, 
check it out. Uh, and uh, yeah, just come by to Pitchlist. Follow me on Pitchlist. Let's just talk about it. It's great. And I am grateful to you, Nick, because a couple years ago when we were playing Tout Wars in 2020, um, I, I needed you to go ahead and beat Ian Khan in the last day of the season. <laughs> the least I could do. Yes, and you did, and that propelled that propelled me into a tie. And of course, I had the the tie breaking uh, points advantage, and so that gave me the title. That was because Nick didn't sit by and say, "I don't care. I'm not winning at the last week." You played your fullest, and you took down Ian, and that that led me to a championship. So I got to be grateful for that, right? <laughs> Well, of course, uh, you know, I, I feel bad. Sorry, Ian Khan, nothing personal, but, you know, just got to play to the end. Yes. No, I, I Ian would appreciate guys who play to the end. Not you in that particular case, but in general, yes. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ruben, what about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates. I'm now also tweeting out videos of players coming back from injury on the field. So if you see them, you can see how they're pitching, see how they're moving, and everything like that. Also, my weekly article on rotaballer.com will be coming out the first week of the season discussing all the injuries, who's next up, and what to expect. All right, I'm Ariel Cohen. You can see my work over at Fangraphs, over at Rotoballer. ATC projections are up at those sites. Plus on Pitcher List, so go there today. Uh, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY, and of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. Uh, so, yep, next week we'll be on again with uh, more starting pitching strategy and a couple of other players. We'll do relief pitching the week after, and uh, that'll get you set for your upcoming uh, drafts or auctions. If you play auction, listen to our previous show with Steve Gardner. That was an amazing show. Uh, if you haven't done it, or even if you're a veteran, people who who have done auctions for 20 years message me like, oh, wow, great, great tidbits. So great episode. Check that out as well. And that that is all. So from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.